You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What is the impact of incretin-based therapies for type 2 diabetes and the cardiometabolic syndrome in both the intensive care unit and emergency medicine department? Joining us to discuss incretin-based therapies in a new area is Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Dr. Stanley Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We talk about DPP-4s, GLP-1 agonists in the treatment of outpatient diabetes, but today... We're going to be talking about a fascinating new area based on their pathophysiology of how to use it in the in-hospital setting. So, Stan, why don't you give us some opening thoughts on that? Well, this started as a story back in 78 as a fellow. I was one of the first two or three people who published on the use of continuous closed-loop insulin pump glucose monitoring systems in surgery. And then I started as a, a young attending at Penn presented this to the anesthesiologist at their conference, and they said, so what? And, and it struck me that, uh, in a way, they were right. There was absolutely no proof that controlling the sugar in the hospital made any difference at all. So, so then what happened, uh, skipped 20 years until the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, when finally the data started coming out that said that if the sugar is high, in, as somebody comes into the hospital, their adverse outcomes in the hospital are much greater. And afterwards, too. And afterwards, absolutely. And, we, and this is morbidity, this is mortality, length of stay, this is um, admission rates to ICUs, this is less chance to be sent to home versus going to nursing homes and care units. This is uh, Guillermo's work on Perez. Um, and, and this was it with that was all hospital stuff. And then MI, strokes, subarachnoid bleeds. If they had uh, MI, they got more CHF. Um, if it was post heart surgery, they had longer stays, infection rates, operative mortality, worse long term prognosis. Um, general medicine patients, COPD, pneumonia, death, prolonged stay. All this was crazy. And then what was even more important is that the people who were not known to be diabetic before they came in, whether it be stress diabetes or newly discovered diabetes, they even had worse rates of uh, adverse outcomes. Let's talk about the role of these incretins in the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes for the in-hospital management. Well, the, the, the first remember what they do, uh, quote, in general. Yes. Uh, these have a, a glucose-dependent uh, insulin release of uh, uh, from the beta cell, they have glucose-dependent glucagon release. Uh, at higher doses, they create satiety. They uh, slow gastric emptying, which is fast in diabetics, and then slow down to normal. Uh, it reduces hepatic glucose output. Um, the fact that it's a glucose-dependent insulin uh, release uh, means that they are highly unlikely to have a hypoglycemia. Um, so we, we, we know all this stuff. And then what happened was uh, I was part of the... Uh, of peop the group that uh, created these new in-hospital aggressive modes of therapy, IV insulin treatment, because there was a whole bunch of data that came out that if you did do uh, 
and more aggressive control, you really did make an improvement. It's the Gami studies and Crinsley studies and uh, Fernari studies and, and cabbage and so forth. Well, then you got the, the problem because then you got nice sugar where you had multiple centers and not everybody knew what they were doing. Uh, you had uh, uh, other studies that suggested that if you hit less than 80, then you'd get into trouble. So my whole story was, and even though I had created these regimens, more hypoglycemia we saw, could we reduce the risk of hypoglycemia in the hospital? Could we get the use of less insulin in the hospital? And the candidate were these incretins that don't cause low sugar when you lose it, uh, use it alone um, and, uh, and might do everything I wanted to do. Well, in terms of the um, these incretins in the hospital and even in the emergency room, tell us a little bit more about what what you published in your recent article, and let let the listeners know where that is. Well, we started to use these agents in the hospital. Uh, I would do post-op bariatric surgery, post-op cabbage, post-op uh, neurosurgery, where they use steroids. I would use these incretins, and uh, what we observed was about a third of the people who would have been on insulin otherwise didn't need it. Uh, if they were on insulin, uh, they needed lesser doses, if they were eating and not only getting basal, uh, they were getting bolus, we could avoid the use of bolus insulin in about 80% of these people. And it was very effective, very surprisingly effective. We think outpatient 0.5 to 1%, maybe 1.2% drops. Well, in the hospital, uh, DPP-4s were equal to about 20 units of insulin, and uh, uh, the, the medics were equal to about 40 units of insulin. And, and it was just amazing how uh, effective they were, and we didn't understand why. Give us some doses, how you start off, let's say, with a GLP-1 agonist, because we know you got to start on the lower side, and if they're in the hospital for a shorter period of time, then how do you ramp up that dose? Uh, so I don't ramp it. So th- th- let's say exanatide's the one I use most experience because the, the, the laryngotide's only been out a few months. Uh, we just give them five. And people get worried, oh, nausea. But remember, the nausea in outpatient use of exenatide, uh, part of it is satiety from the hypothalamus, and only about 1% of people have an oversensitive hypothalamus. That's the dropout rate for all these studies. Um, so that's actually no greater than the risk of uh, uh, nausea from uh, any other of these drugs that are being used periodically. Yeah, my wife complains about my insensitive hypothalamus all the time. Right. <laughs> And then the other issue is that we know that uh, when you're using a critomimetics, you get full quickly. None of the companies tell us to stop eating when we're uh, tell the patients stop eating when they're full. So we find out in the hospital: a, I tell them that; b, they're not eating as much as they do outpatient. Number three, they're eating more slowly. So we've not seen nausea get in the way of uh, of the use. I see. That's been published uh, as well in cabbage uh, as well. Um, and, and so we just use the, the five twice a day. Uh, off-label, uh, it uh, uh, can be given alone without a meal, and it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the classic example I use, uh, and that is a, a transplant patient, a surgeon, who didn't mind giving himself shots, but his doses changed all the time. And uh, he was on 40 units of insulin. Gave him one day of exenatide, and he didn't require insulin. The sugars are perfect. This is really fascinating stuff. I'm glad we're getting into the nitty-gritty. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD 
XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I am speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Stanley Schwartz. We are discussing Incretin-based therapies in the unusual and unthought-of setting of the intensive care and emergency medicine department. Well, let's continue, Stan. Do you use these therapies in people with type 1 diabetes or solely type 2? Um, I'll say solely type 2. Now, here's the key. Clinicians all over the country have seen this. They just don't write about it and so forth. But if you ask them why it works, nobody works. I did a literature search, basic science, and this is the, what I found. We know there's four stress hormones, glucagon and growth hormone and um, uh, cortisol and catechols. And uh, these agents reduce glucagon. That's wonderful. So uh, you can reduce the sugar that way by these agents. But the surprising issue is steroids. If you ask any endocrinologist, say, well, steroids increase hepatic glucosalpidins resistance. But what they don't know is that steroids reduce beta cell secretion of insulin in the amplifying pathway that's overcome by GLP-1. Not only are you treating the glucagon, you're treating two stress hormones. And that's what makes them so effective. Now, let's talk about some of the cardiovascular-related uh, factors. And we know that in some of the clinical trials, the outpatient trials, we see some benefits in blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, some of the cardiovascular markers. What about inpatient? Well, first of all, we also know why they work. They improve myocyte metabolism, reduce fatty acids, so they improve uh, endothelial dysfunction. Uh, so we know there's a benefit to the heart uh, wherever you're going to use them. Um, and then what we, we surprisingly found, and these are all small studies, but they're very effective, uh, is you infuse GLP-1 during cabbage, and the sugar um, is reduced. Uh, if they need insulin, they're taking half the dose that the other people did, and they have reductions in arrhythmias and re- reduction in pressure use. In people who have um, uh, heart failure, you see improved uh, uh, ejection fraction. Um, and uh, also in hospital situations, you give meals and you reduce the sugar with meals. You reduce the sugars when you're giving uh, tube feeds, um, and, uh, uh, and there's this uh, uh, reduction in arrhythmias that they saw with the cabbage studies. Um, so we think not only are we doing the benefit of avoiding hypoglycemia in many of these patients, but we're improving their cardiovascular benefit. What about the perioperative period? That's an interesting thought. Uh, the first place that uh, is worth talking about are cabbages. Um, and we're using exenatide IV just as an experiment, and it reduces the sugar in that situation. But it's not terribly effective. Why? Because during surgery, the first hormone that comes out of the catechols, and this doesn't do anything with catechols. But after three days, you're on the insulin drip. Um, you can, uh, if your drip rate, the last six hours is less than two and a half units per hour, and then Guillermo and Perez and I both agree on these kinds of numbers. Uh, you give them just 100 milligrams of citagliptin, and guess what? Many, if not most of these patients don't need insulin. We would have given them traditionally 50% of their uh, estimated 24-hour dose of uh, uh, insulin as Lantus, you know, and, and yet these people don't need it. Use exenatide, you're going to be even more likely to stay away from insulin especially in these people who come in, uh, you know, there may be outpatient glycemia, maybe six, but they come in and they're hyperglycemic, it's very effective. And then they, again, don't need the insulin afterwards. They can go on the, the DPP-4 or the incontinent medic, and, and uh, we don't need the insulin, so we're going to reduce the rate of hyperglycemia a third in the hospital. It's huge. Yeah. Well, Stan, you're obviously ahead of your time ever since, uh, you know, you were a fellow. What, what kind of research needs to be done to get the rest of the folks on the, of this country on board with this stuff? 
Well, we, we need, you know, excellent clinical researchers, which I'm not, to get large numbers of patients, define the kinds of surgeries, the kinds of doses uh, that should be used, uh, algorithms. You know, the article I just published in Diabetes uh, uh, and Metabolic Syndrome Obesity uh, gives you an algorithm. Uh, so that was just published this month that people can look for it. Uh, that gives an algorithm on how to uh, approach this, how it, uh, you can avoid using sulfonylureas, how you can minimize insulin. By the way, if they need insulin, Genuvia is on label with insulin, and in these people, the dose of basal is reduced. Um, most of these people, I don't need the boluses, and therefore my numbers during the day are less variable, and there's all this theory about how variability is bad for these people yeah. uh, in a hospital. And, of course, you're, you're reducing uh, nursing time, taking blood sugar so much. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Dr. Stanley Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Steve, and I wish you all well. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. July 10th. My lecture tour is going well. While the days have not been too tiring, I do worry for Marie and her diabetes. Dr. Hayedorn mentioned that her blood sugar was above normal right before we left. I hope we can find some answers while we are here. In 1922... Novo Nordisk's founder, Nobel Prize-winning scientist August Crowe, and his wife and fellow scientist Marie made a fateful visit to America to further their research and build relationships with doctors working on the earliest treatments for diabetes. July 28th. We keep hearing of this new medication that replaces the insulin that people with diabetes no longer make on their own. People who treat their diabetes can live longer and healthier lives. This could be what we've been searching for. Upon learning about the work being done at the University of Toronto, August and Marie headed north to make a connection that would change the face of diabetes treatment forever. August 11th, Dr. Hayedorn, as I believe you will be interested from both a theoretical and practical point of view, I have persuaded my husband to write to Dr. McLeod in Toronto and ask to obtain its method of manufacture so you can perform experiments with insulin in Denmark. November the 1st, Success. We have replicated the process here in Kirmhaun and will be administering the first batches of insulin to patients by week's end. This could be the moment when we finally get control over Marie's diabetes and help so many others. From our first patient to our latest innovation, Novo Nordisk has been a world leader in diabetes care for nearly a century. Our patient-centric philosophy has led to many breakthroughs, including insulin analogs and easy-to-use delivery devices and a global commitment to advancing research, education, and partnership. And our mission is the same today as it was back then, to defeat diabetes. Visit us at novonordisk-us.com.